Welcome to this week's Leader's Guide for the Spring Quarter of Life Groups. This resource is provided to help you prepare and effectively lead your group. For your convenience, you can also download a written version of the guide under Life Group Leader Tools at gatewaycrc.org forward slash lifegroups. Remember to tune in each week and to look out for the weekly edition of Life Group Leaders Weekly. Let's join Adam Van Dopp now as he introduces this week's material. Well, hey there, Life Group leaders. Uh, we've made it now to the final week of our Life Group semester here at Gateway in the winter 2022 semester. What a great journey this has been through the Revelation series. It's been an amazing look at this incredible book that is filled with so much hope and love. Well, thank you, leaders, once again for joining us this semester, for leading our members through this material, for having those hard and tough conversations uh, around this content. Oh, I commend you, each and every one of you, for making it to this point, to this end. Uh, and man, do we ever appreciate your work amongst our church community. Well, let's jump right now into our final material for this semester as we look at chapters 19 and 20 of this incredible book. So thinking about preparation for your next, meet, your next meeting, plan your approach to the discussion questions, uh, even distribute the feedback forms in a, an electronic way. I'm going to send you a link about all that. And then plan again to finish strong. Uh, we've, we've talked about this for a little bit uh, in that we're in our final week here, um, final week number nine. Uh, but there's no reason why you can't continue on and just gather together as a group every once in a while. So even consider planning a week number 10 that is just simply going to be for fun. Uh, one that's not centered around a study, but one that is centered to propound uh, your relationships that you've developed over these last nine weeks. Uh, organize an activity to do together and uh, just go and have some fun out there. And also remember, uh, we would love to see some pictures of you and your groups. Uh, maybe do a cool little selfie with you all in it at your last meeting and uh, share that with me. I would love to see all that. And don't forget to track your attendance as that helps us gain uh, an, an understanding of how well this ministry is, uh, is working. So let's jump into the material here, uh, starting off with a couple getting to know you questions. And these these are going to take a different form in that uh, while your groups are nine weeks into this, uh, there's probably some good relationships that are forming here. Uh, but at this point, given that we're now at the last week of our life group meetings, uh, feel free to even spend some more time on these more reflective questions where the number one question here is, what is your fondest memory of your time together this particular semester? Uh, so we ask this in, in a way to reflect and debrief as those activities are so good for you to do with your group as a group. You know, having your members share stories of their good memories uh, provides an encouraging word for you as leaders, but also for your members to hear collectively how everyone has been impacted by the growing, growing relationships. This might even be a good conversation to see extended and just to enjoy. The second follow-up question here is, uh, what about this Revelation series stands out to you the most? And so in the same vein as the fondest memories of the group question, it is also good to take a 30,000 foot view of our journey through Revelation that we're finishing off in our groups and just to establish what are the key things that we have learned. And you know for myself, um, just getting a fuller understanding of the sovereignty of God that uh, already to the end of time, to the end of all of these matters and all the way through it uh, was that he was setting himself up for victory at uh, causing this victory and even leading us towards being able to experience this victory. And I think that's just a neat outtake that I've been learning and I've been seeing. Uh, so hopefully you'll have something as well that you're, you're learning and seeing through all this incredible study. We'll launch into the quick review section, which we won't review too much here. The first question being, look at your past notes from this teaching. Was there anything that particularly caught your attention, challenged, or confused you? 
uh, just a way to review what we've been listen, listening to. Uh, number two, Pastor Marcel said the safest place for you and I is on the front lines because that is where Christ is active uh, riding the white horse. Well, how did that statement strike you? And we go into the God story where we want to now encourage you to read the, the portion of scripture that we're reflecting on in Revelation 19 verses 9 through 16 and asking yourselves about this passage. What's standing out to us? Why why was this written for us? What, what, it, what caused it to be preserved so long that we need to learn something from it as we explore how God's word is uh, true and rich in our lives? Which leads us into the digging deeper portion where we dive into uh, the themes of this stretch of scripture here where the first question reads, read Revelation 19 verses 6 through 8. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this. How does this wedding metaphor help you understand your relationship with God? Well, this question is more of an open-ended question as its practicalities will be biblically fleshed out more so in the following question. But with that in mind, use this question to draw out the initial reactions and thoughts of your members and allow your members this time and space to simply share their reactions and their thoughts and even ask simple follow-up questions of their answers, asking what made you think it that way or would you tell us a little bit more about that? So the follow-up question that we'll use to now flush out this uh, metaphor of the wedding has us reading Hosea chapter 2 verses 16 through 20 and Ephesians chapter 5 verses 22 to 33. So Hosea there speaks of the relationship between God and Israel as a marriage and Paul describes marriage as being between Christ and the church. And so as a bride then prepares for her wedding day, how are we, the church and our individuals, preparing for this relationship? Well, the text in Hosea there is super neat as, well, most scripture is super neat. But this text in Hosea comes at a time when the Lord is reestablishing his covenantal promises with the Israelites who have been up until now uh, pretty disobedient. They've been pretty distant from God's instructions and God's word. So much so that uh, God even announces that they are not going to receive his mercy, that they are not going to be his people. Well, they always still received his mercy and they were always his people. Um, Interesting concept, I know. Uh, so, however, uh, as God is 100% committed to his people, he works hard to constantly remind them of who he is and who they are. And he says in Hosea 2.19, I will betroth you to me forever in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, and in mercy. And it sounds like a longer lasting, expanded version of our uh, vows that we often use in our marriages that say, till death do us part. Uh, they're forever here on earth and beyond, we're not entirely sure, but God's promises to us is that he's going to betroth us to him forever in all the righteousness and justice and all the steadfast love that he can muster up and provide for us. And so for some expanded conversation around this topic, and uh, this is just me being fascinated by this word, uh, have your group read a little farther into Hosea chapter 2, covering verses 21 and 20 to 23, where God pronounces that he will now have mercy on the people. Um, that he's called no mercy and that uh, the people that he called and not my people will then also be called his people. And so the commitment that God has for us, as we see now, uh, once again, uh, penciled out for us is that it's forever, it's timeless, it's ceaseless. It's the commitment then that our marriage ceremonies are modeled around. Then Paul in Ephesians 5 expands upon this teaching and applies the marriage model to Christ's commitment and to the love for his, the church. And this passage is so often misquoted, uh, taking it to be Paul's instruction for how a marriage is to be dominated by the husband. But it's interesting to note that in Ephesians 5.23 that Paul articulates that he's referring not to actual human marriages, but to Christ and the church. 
You see, Christ is the husband, the bridegroom, and the church is the wife, the, the bride. So I want you to think about the last wedding you attended or that you were even in and you participated in. Think of the work that the bride has done in preparing for that day. And it's often seen that the bride has spent her entire life dreaming and thinking about this day and all that it entails. Uh, and not just the decoration and the events of the day, but of the commitment that she is making to leave her parents and to start a new life and a new family with her husband-to-be. And it's a life-changing day, really. And so in our relationship with Christ as the church, we need to be putting on the same emphasis and growing our relationship with God. We need to be dreaming about the same kind of decorations, but a little bit differently about what our lives are going to look like and how we serve the Lord. We need to be thinking about the events of that particular day, that celebration, about how we give structure to our faith, about how we attend church, how we uh, give ourselves to devotional patterns, and how we pray to the Lord. But we also need then to be preparing for that commitment of how we give ourselves to the long haul of following God, not just to a couple hours on Sunday mornings. Cool discussion there. Uh, go on then and read uh, question number two. Read Revelation chapter 19 verses 9 through 10. The angel called John out for this misdirected worship, who have been the people who have called us out in ours, so in our misdirected worship. And so this is a fascinating portion of John's revelation. As last week, we saw John being enamored by the prostitute and her appeal and the alluring presence. And the angel then corrected him. And now here again in chapter 19, verse 10, it happens again. John is enamored by this particular angel who's speaking to him and begins then to worship this particular angel. And the angel, uh, uh, picking up on this tone uh, with firmness, replies back, you must not do that. Uh, and, so we see that this is the work of the angel being in tune with God's Holy Spirit who, who seeks to guide us in worship and to be directing us back to the one whom deserves such honor and glory and that is of course God and God alone and not his particular angels. And so in our lives, in our own distractions, in our own misguided worship, we, we give of our worship and we misdirect that honor and that glory. And sometimes we have people in our lives like this angel who call us out on these patterns and on these behaviors and these people in boldness, they approach us. So I encourage you leaders to use this question as you ask your members uh, if they have some accountability structure in their lives, whether they have people whom they trust ever so deeply that they would hear and discern uh, these words like this and recognize that it is the work of the Spirit that is drawing them back to worship of the Creator God. Go into question number three here. Read Revelation 6 verses 1 through 2 and 19 verses 11 through 16. How is the white horse and rider in Revelation 19 different from the one that is presented in Revelation 6? And so a number of weeks ago, we looked at the four horsemen in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 6, and we saw the first horse and rider come onto the battle scene positioned and ready to conquer within that battle. This white horse came on the field as a faux savior, as an imitation Jesus. And this white horse and rider came in with the intention and ready to fight, but not to establish peace. It held its bow or its sword in its hand held high for the attack. So Pastor Justin on February 13th told us that this white horse was the counterfeit gospel revealed in lust for our personal own conquest. And so this horse then represents our own sin and our own depravity and our own intentions to fight a battle rather than enter into to seek peace. And so now in Revelation 19, we see a whole new picture of this white horse and its rider. This time the rider is named Faithful and True and other descriptions elevate this rider's authority. 
uh, this one key difference now that the sword is now coming out of the rider, rider's mouth as opposed to being held now in the rider's hand. So the sword in the rider's mouth appears to be one of seeking peace and could even be seen as representative of the word of God. This rider isn't coming onto the scene with a heart of conquest and defeat, but has arrived to lead the story of peace. So a neat follow-up question here is reading uh, Matthew 21 verses 1 through 5 asks the question. So the Jews were expecting the Messiah to arrive on a majestic horse, victorious after riding the land, ridding the land of the Romans. Instead, he humbly rides a donkey positioned to serve. Now in Revelation 19, we see Jesus mounted on this majestic horse. What is or is not the difference in these two pictures? And so as Easter is coming upon us in the coming week, uh, Palm Sunday being this very coming April the 10th, it is fitting for us to explore the longing hearts of the Jews as they have been told all through their years that a Messiah would come. And their impression of this Messiah looks more like the Revelation 19 white horse and rider rather than the one who entered Jerusalem, that city, on uh, Palm Sunday. While they are the exact same persons who is a Jesus Christ, the two moments between Matthew 21 and Revelation 19 have different points of emphasis. And so think back to Palm Sunday there as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the donkey, he arrived in a display of humility and servitude. And he told the Jews earlier regarding their relationship with the Romans, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And there he's telling him, the, the, his Jewish audience there, hey, when a Roman tells you to do something, you're going to do it, but you're going to do it better and you're going to do it more for the purpose of serving that particular soldier. So Jesus told them that he wasn't there to rid the land of the Romans, but that he was there to show God's hospitality and authentic love for them. He came to seek and usher in a new world of peace. And so the depiction then of Jesus on the white horse in Revelation 19 is then the completion or the fulfillment of his actions, that he has now been triumphant and ushering into this peace and the implementing of his father's kingdom there on earth. And the enemy and his servants have been now defeated. Those who then are now written in the book of life are now positioned to enter into the new heavens and the new earth that is soon to descend in the coming chapters. So then we take it home with this then final question. Uh, this typically is the hardest question of them all and gets your group members uh, being ultimately challenged to consider how now the theme that we've been exploring takes shape in their lives. And I think this one uh, might have some neat discussion. Read Matthew 25 verses 41 through 46 and Revelation 20 verses 15. Those who are not active in their faith in God will be driven away from Christ's presence. What makes this image and the future of some so unsettling? Who are the circles, who are in your circles that you are most concerned about in this way? And so there is a book written some years ago uh, that got too much traction. It was called Love Wins by uh, pastor, speaker, and author, a gentleman named Rob Bell. Now, this is no way supporting this book. I just want to give you that heads up. It's a terrifying book with some uh, rather terrible theology in it, and I'll explain it here. So in this book, he argues that there is no actual hell, that hell only exists on earth in places like war and famine, disputes and brokenness, and a starving child. Uh, Bell goes on to argue that no one will be able to then to resist God's love even after they die and all will be eventually welcomed into God's presence. He says that in the end that love will win, the title of the book. But soon after, in the coming years, Francis Chan, another respected uh, author and pastor and theologian that we, we, we like here, um, he published a book to refute Bell's errant argument. And so Francis Chan writes in his book called Erasing Hell this quote. He says on page 88, 
Jesus chose strong and terrifying language when he spoke of hell. I believe he chose to speak this way because he loves us and wanted to warn us. So let's not miss this point. He spoke of hell as a horrifying place, characterized by suffering, of fire, of darkness, and of lamentation. I believe his intention was to stir up fear in us that would cause us to take hell seriously and avoid it at all costs. And so this image of the lake of fire that we read in Revelation 20 here is unsettling in so many ways. And perhaps what is most horrifying about this image is that people that we know, people that we love, and people that we know the faces of will face the very wrath of this particular lake of fire if they never hear and receive the good news of Christ. And so throughout this whole Revelation series, we've been led to a point of decision that will we worship the beast and its prostitute or will we worship the lamb and its bride? We are told here now in Revelation 20 verse 15 that those who choose to follow the beast, well, they will experience the pain and torment of the lake of fire, which is ultimately summarized in the true and complete separation from God. Well, leaders, at this point, do your best to not let your group end on such a low and discouraging note in a conversation all around hell and its realities, as this, this conversation can certainly and will be heavy. But lead your group to the last part of the question that we just looked at, uh, who are in your circles that you are most concerned about? Those faces that we know and that we recognize, that we know the very names of. And that we need to end our discussion in an element of hope that there is in fact life for them. That they simply need to be invited to hear and to listen to this offer that is presented to them. And lead them to the water to introduce them to the drink that is in front of them so that they can lay down and drink it up themselves. Well, that, leaders, is the end of this material that we're going to be covering, and I look forward to the culmination of this whole discussion as we gather together on uh, the following Sunday, Palm Sunday, where we get to hear uh, Jesus' invitation and his reminder to say, Behold, I am coming soon. And I think it's such a neat picture that on that very day on Palm Sunday, where we get the picture of the donkey riding in on that uh, moment and the, the palm branches and the, and the coats on the ground, and we get this grandiose picture of Jesus saying to us, behold, I am coming back again to explore this victory and this peace. Well, leaders, once again, I so appreciate your work and your, your leadership amongst our church community over these last number of months. I look forward to working with you all again in the coming semester of fall 2022. I invite you members now at this point to close your time in prayer, chatting through some ongoing prayer needs and updating each other on where things are at. And of course, be sure into the midst of all of this, offer prayers of gratitude. Well, leaders, we will talk to you once again in a few months. See you.